This morning we're going to be looking through the chapter of Jonah chapter 1 and um, just as it has been read and, and investigate that, but I, will, I must say that the, as I start off this morning, my thoughts this week as much as they've been on the passage have also been on the news coming out of Afghanistan. And some of my thoughts for my, especially my opening story that I want to tell, comes as much from the fears that we have as, as I think it's been a distressing week. You know, even though maybe we in our own personal lives feel safe and secure, just the, 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 the negative stuff coming out, we have, we're afraid for the Americans and the military, um, some of whom died in the, the recent attack. Um, we're afraid for Afghan people who had who'd trusted the U.S. And, and helped us, and now they are in grave danger, and we, we, we wonder if there's hope for them. We fear for, for young women and what their life will be like. We fear for the Christians. Um, there's not many Christians in Afghanistan, but um, we worry what might happen to them. And, and so it's in, in light of all that that I, I was thinking about um, how do, we, how do we think through this fear and this anxiety? And I, I don't know about you, I just, just kept coming to mind this week. And, and so, for, I mean, first of all, of course, we should pray, as we have been doing, praying for those people. Um, but I was thinking about something we did this summer. In fact, we went to Osable Chasm, and it's up near Plattsburgh, New York. Great, great trip. We camped. It was kind of our family camping one. Um, and at one point, our whole family, we, we went the tubing trip through the can, chasm, which was cool. But then me and the two, my two daughters um, went through the adventure trail. And this was, this was a challenge. We, uh, they put us in one of those harnesses, and you had carabiner straps. And they, they built the, the thing so that the entire way through the trail is a, a security wire, a guide wire. And so you, you clip both of your carabiners to the guide wire, and you're able to go through the whole course that way. And the course, go, you're over top of a raging river below, and you're, you're leaned up against the cliff. I, the next picture kind of shows that part where, like, you're, you know... You're holding on, and um, there's one point, it's like you're, you're doing a tightrope, and it was a blast, but a little intimidating. And, you know, not that I was afraid or anything, but, uh, you know, there's, there's times where you have to, like, change elements, and you have to step up or go the side, and you, you can't tell if your foot's secure, right? Is this going to give way? And, but, but the thing is, they... Before they let us go up, they emphasized, you know, you have these two things and you might have to change over to a different transition, but you're only to take off one at a time. Like, you can't believe how many times they said that, <laughs> but they wouldn't have, they didn't need to tell me that, you know. As long as you had one of them connected in, you were secure. And so even though as I was doing this, you had that feeling of fear. Right? And you had to overcome that fear. And, and looking around was both beautiful but also fearful. Right? It added to that. But if you were secured in, you, you were utterly safe. 
right? The worst that can happen is you'd fall a little bit and it would catch you. And so that experience of, of going through the trail where you can be tied into something that keeps you absolutely secure, that is, is a picture of the relationship we have with God, right? We, we can secure ourselves to the living rock, to the, to the God, the one who we trust in. And, and we, we trust him with our lives. And as we go through life, sometimes we are overwhelmed with fear. And we see things that happen and, and we don't know, and the anxiety wells up. But we know, ultimately, if we are secured to him, nothing can happen. Nothing can take us out of his hands. He is our rock. He is our refuge. And so we can find peace. We can find our 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 sense of well-being in that kind of relationship. That's the relationship God invites us into and that through Jesus we, we can accept and be a part of. Our story, as we look at the story of Jonah, we have a man of God, a prophet, who nevertheless decides to unhook himself from his God. Right? He decides he wants to run away. He no longer wants to be attached to and, and connected to, to the Lord God. And so Jonah um, was given a command he didn't want to fulfill. And so instead, he, he gets on a ship and goes the opposite direction to which he is supposed to be going. And when I was thinking about what lesson we might take away from Jonah, we kind of have the Sunday school lesson, right? The First of which being, don't run from God, you know, or you'll get swallowed by a whale. If you're teaching this to kids, right, it's not a good idea to run away from God. You know, he, he's, he's, he made everything, it just bad things happen. So that might be the, the, the main lesson, and maybe that's just what we need to hear today. But I, as we go through it, there's four surprises I see in the story. Four things that jump out to me as elements of the narrative. And I think each one is meant to teach us a point. So I'm going to go through those four surprises in the chapter one of Jonah. The first one is the tempest. God uses this, this great storm to get Jonah's attention and actually redirect him, change his direction back in the right way. God chooses to use a great tempest, a storm, to do that. Jonah had paid the fare to, to go on a ship. Um, it was going from Joppa in the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the western part of the Mediterranean. It had been a long journey, and it was a cargo ship. They didn't really have cruise lines, you know, Mediterranean cruise lines back then. So basically, the, for the people who ran the ship, like, it's bonus money if you take on a paying fare. And so that's what happened. Um, he was intent on ignoring God and getting away from God. Nevertheless, you can't run away from the presence of the Lord. And so the Lord decided to reclaim his prophet, and he did it by sending a storm to stop the ship. A great wind. It became a tempest. And it was so bad, it was threatening to break up the ship. And God has, has ways of getting our attention. Um, he, he could do things. Um, and as long as things are going good in our life, if things, you know, are going okay, won't we just keep on going, feel like things are fine, 
Can't we just say, you know, what does it take for God to get our attention? If there's a change that needs to happen, how does God show us that? On our own, if things are good, we can just keep ignoring. We can just keep building up more and more debt or, you know, whatever it is. God had to do something dramatic to get Jonah's attention. And what will God use to get our attention? Sometimes it's the storm that shows shows us what we need to make a change. Jesus talked about building a house. He said some people build their house on sand, and that's fine until the storm comes. It's only then that you realize the condition of your life when the storm hits and it knocks the house down. God can use the storms, the struggles of life, the heartaches to get our attention and to, sh- and to have us rethink, take stock of what our life is about. Now, I want to be careful with this idea because it's not that God always, is, every storm is, is sent by God to punish us or anything. It's just some storms are really just because we live in a broken world. Um, a broken world where these things happen. And it may not be about testing us personally. In fact, you think about the, the mariners, the sailors, like it, the storm was for Jonah, not for them, but they were caught up, caught up in it anyways. Some storms were simply meant to endure and, and our God will give us strength to endure them. But no matter what reason the storm has come, they give us that chance to take stock of our life and to, and to think through what our life is built on. Things that seem important before the storm suddenly are just cargo to be tossed overboard. Do you notice how the whole reason they had that ship was the cargo? When their life was at stake, it all got thrown overboard. They gave up that whole reason. That's what happens in the midst of these storms. It, it shows us what our priorities really matter. There's a line from Jesus that it's a little out of context, but it still, still factors in. He says, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. There's times we get worried about all the stuff. The storms focus our attention on what's important. Only one thing is needed. Only one line is secure enough to hold us. So that's the first thing, I think. The first surprise in the story is that how God uses a storm to redirect his prophet. The second aspect of the story that, that, that's really striking is the indifference of Jonah toward the mariners. So when the storm hits, the, the, the mariners are doing everything they can to survive. They toss over the cargo they're, they're, they're fighting against the storm. They try to do everything they can to try to save their lives. They call out to their gods. These are not, uh, they don't know the, the true and living God. These are, are pagan sailors. Um, they're experienced sailors, but they see the end coming. The storm is unlike anything they've seen before, and they're, they're, they're doing whatever they can. What is Jonah doing? He goes down below and falls asleep. He seems to not care about his own life, or the lives of these other men. In fact, I, I looked up the, the, the Greek version of this, the Septuagint. It actually says that Jonah was snoring so loud the sailors could hear him. And so the captain of the ship 
is just can't believe his eyes. He's aghast, and he, he goes down to Jonah and says, wake up, what are you doing? At least call out to your God, right? Maybe your God can save us. Our gods certainly aren't saving us. And as the story goes on, the text says nothing about Jonah actually praying, actually doing anything like that. He's, I mean, he's a prophet. Like his job is, is talking to God. And yet he, he won't take that step. The callousness that he has. They go on to cast lots. In other words, they sort of like rolling dice or whatever. Because they're convinced. The sailors are convinced that this is no ordinary storm. We must have ticked off some divine being. That's the only way. This is not natural. Some, some God is really angry at one of us. Let's find out who. And so they cast lots. Jonah knows Right? He, he knows it's him. And yet he plays it cool. Like, it, it's only when the lots point exactly at him that he finally fesses up to say, yeah, I, I'm the one. Um, they, interestingly enough, he had already told them he was running from God. Uh, what they didn't know is the God he was running from. They asked him, what people are you? Like, who are you? What kind of God are you running from? It's only then does he reveal that he is running from the Lord God who made the sea and the land and everything in it. They're like, oh, man, the Lord God. Like, they've probably heard stories about the God of Israel and the things he had done. And all of a sudden, the, the mariners are filled even with more fear. But, but this callousness, this indifference of Jonah to, to the mariners. I, the question I wonder, is there a connection between Jonah's running away from God and the way he just can care less about these sailors? Is there some connection? I, I wonder if in his, his heart he's just, he doesn't care about anyone but himself at this stage. He's so self-absorbed and self-focused, he can't think about God and neither does he care about the people around him. I think there's a principle. It, it it talks in the scriptures. It says, we love because he first loved us. It is God's love for us that truly empowers us to, to love and care for other people. You see, I, I think in our nature, we tend to be very self-focused, self-absorbed. Um, we we, we kind of orbit our own lives we, we see our own needs, we, we, we know our own feelings, and, and those always seem to dominate our thinking. Um, the Lord tries to get us to look beyond ourselves, beyond our feelings, beyond the, the to-do list that we want to do, and to actually care about others. And that, that's something God has to draw us towards. I was thinking about even as we were, were, were doing Psalm 150, and it talks about, you know, praise the Lord, everything that's in it. You know, why does God want us to praise him and worship him? I mean, does he really need us to do that? Is he, you know, oh, if only they would praise me, it would make me feel good. No, God, God does not need our praise. We need to praise him. Because what does that do? It means when we praise God, when we come to worship, at least for an hour, we take our minds off of our to-do list our needs, our self, our focus, right? Everything's about us, and we put it on something greater. That is heart-shaping. 
Worship shapes who we are. And we, we learn through worship to train our focus on something else. And then God says, okay, now that you've done that, the second thing I want you to do is like it. Look at the people around you. Care about them and what's going on in their lives. We need that, that worship time. We need to have it renewed. That's why we worship every week, right? To take the, the focus of our self-interest and put it onto God instead. That is God's desire in our life. He's less concerned with our doing religious deeds to earn brownie points. What he cares about is what is our inner heart focus, the inner heart transformation that we need so that we can, first of all, love him and then begin to love the people around us. We love because he first loved us. The third surprise in this story um, is how honorable the mariners are. These pagan sailors treat Jonah far better than he treats them. And they, I mean, they go to great lengths to try to save him. That when he says, you got to throw me in the ocean, they, they says they row as hard as they can to try to get to land so they can avoid what they assume would be just killing Jonah as they toss him overboard. Um, when they first discovered the truth that it was Jonah's fault that they're going through this, they don't get mad at Jonah and rail at him. Um, they just, they, in fact, in the end, it says they call out to God. They don't want to cast Jonah overboard. They plead, you know, and ultimately they say when they realize that there's no other way of salvation, they say, God, this must be your will. Please don't, don't punish us, blame us for, for what we have to do in, in pitching Jonah overboard. Um, don't hold us guilty. This must be what you want to happen. So the, the mariners seem to, to be honorable in, in their treatment. What people are these sailors? Like what, what's their people group? Well, they're, they're Phoenicians. So the Phoenicians were a trading people. They were on the coasts all around the Mediterranean Sea their main cities were Tyre and Sidon. The, the ship came out of Joppa, which is a little to the south. Even today, these cities are on the, the area where Lebanon is. Okay, but they had cities all throughout on the coastlines of the Mediterranean. That makes sense why Jonah would get in the boat of Phoenicians. What god did the Phoenicians worship? They were Canaanites. They worshiped Baal. Um, the same God that's so bad that he's associated with Satan. Beelzebub is another name for, for one of Satan's minions, right? This was the direct competitor to Yahweh, the Lord, right? There's other places in the Bible where there's Baal and, and the Lord are like their prophets are battling it out. Th these are people that they, their religious viewpoint was about as bad as you get. Um, there's a queen, Jezebel. Who's, who was a Phoenician queen, she, or, uh, she became a, a princess. Uh, she was a Phoenician princess who became the queen in Israel, married a, uh, Ahab. And she decided she would bring Baal worship into Israel. And it's a big thing of scripture how the battle took place between Baal and the Lord. These sailors were, um, their God was this, this Baal. And yet, how surprising is it within the story that, that they do what's right? They're honorable in what they, they do. In fact, in the end, 
it says they honor the Lord. Um, whatever, not because you know, Jonah was such a great guy, but somehow the, they, in the end they're making vows to the Lord. Jonah, by his indifference, somehow leads these men to believe in the true God. What do we take away from this? What might God be saying to his people by the way this story comes off? And, and I'm thinking about how do we, as, as followers of Jesus, how do we see our religious opponents, those on the other side? It's just like the, these sailors would have been on the other side, the religious opponents of the Israelites, of Jonah. How do we see people who are on the other side? Right now, we live in a very divided society. Uh, moral issues, cultural issues, political issues, and here's what the world is teaching us to do. Despise people who have beliefs different from you. Assume the worst of those people on the other side of the cultural divide. Criticize people on the other side, but praise your own guy when he does the same exact thing. Value winning the argument over developing any kind of relationship. You know, everything on the internet is so-and-so destroys whatever. And it's like you want your opponent to be destroyed. You, you got to win the argument. It, it, we see the faults of people on the other side of, of the things, but we're blind to the faults of those we side with, right? We'll criticize them for the one thing, but if our guy did it, we'd make excuses for him. That's what's happening in our culture right now. We're more divided over these things. Um, we can even get to the point of hoping bad things happen because it might show that the other guy is wrong. We want to win the argument over having good things and being blessed. What I tell you as Christians, we can get drawn in to that same mode that the world is doing. Let us not be too quick to, be, to, to take on the ways of the world and how we, we formulate these arguments, how we treat people. Let's not be too quick to peg non-believers in a negative light. Are there those out there hostile to Christianity? Yeah, there's some. Not that many. Not as many as you'd think. There are far more who are decent people. They're just doing their own thing. They're not necessarily against us. Now, they still need Jesus to be saved. We still ultimately want them to know the Lord, um, but they're not coming to get us. Um, who but knows how God is at work to help them see the truth? And if, if all we have is such a negative view towards the people of the world, then, then, then we're gonna miss what God is doing in, the, in their midst. In fact, maybe the storms that rage in their life when the time is right, they'll, they'll come to us and say, tell us about the God you worship. Maybe there's something I'm missing. Maybe he's put us in their life to be there at that right time. So let's be careful about how we, um, to not peg non-believers, those outside, those who are opponents, in a certain negative light. Let's assume the best and not the worst. That's the third surprise. The fourth surprise is God's means of salvation for Jonah. Obviously, the Lord, God uses a great fish to both save Jonah from drowning and bring the prophet back into the right path. So the, the whale does double duty. So imagine, though, you were hearing this story for the first time. Like, we all know Jonah and the whale. You know, we heard that as kids. But imagine you're hearing this story the first time 
and you hear the part where they cast Jonah into the sea, right? You're going to assume that, well, he might drown or, or, you know, whatever. The last thing you would expect is this huge aquatic animal to shoot out of the water and swallow him. Like, that would have been totally out of the blue as to what you were expecting. Um, and then imagine you're Jonah. So this is the means God chose to save Jonah, the, the whale or fish or whatever. Um, would Jonah have thought of this as salvation? I mean, if you ask Jonah, would you like a large aquatic animal to swallow you? Probably not. Um, if you ask Jonah, why do you think this has happened? God is angry. God no longer cares for me. But the thing is, in that moment, what felt like God's indifference or anger actually was the means of God's salvation and restoration. I wonder how many times in our life God is working our salvation out, but to us it feels like indifference or anger. I wonder if in the midst of the struggles and the heartaches of life, we just can't see what God's about. The, the plans and purposes of God are, are, are there, but we have trouble imagining any good coming of it. That, the, we have the story of Job in the Bible. It's kind of like that, right? God's doing stuff, but Job, to Job it just feels like punishment. Romans 8 says this. It says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Meaning the heartaches of life, the struggles that we face on, on a day-to-day level and times, to us they feel so present and so difficult. But when, when we experience God's finality, what he has in mind, the glory he has in mind for his people, they'll seem like nothing. They'll, be, they'll, they'll just, oh, that would, it'll be worth it. Another verse, just to, to, to emphasize the same thing, in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, it says, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but that are unseen. We can't see what God is doing. But even the, the light and momentary afflictions that don't feel so light and momentary in the midst, God is using them to accomplish that heart transformation so that when the product is finished, we'll be like, oh, God, I can't believe you'd pull that off. God's salvation is always surprising. It's always beyond what we can imagine or see. And I think his salvation, in the way it's, the salvation of Jonah is pointing ahead to an even more surprising and greater salvation. The followers of Jesus could not have imagined how Jesus' death would be the answer that they needed. How the cross, how crucifixion, which was the ultimate loss, the ultimate shame, and complete defeat, and yet how in that God would bring the, the restoration, the forgiveness, the new life that we needed. God was up to something human eyes could not see. And even as Jesus was being violently killed, he was bearing the sins of humanity on his shoulders. He was demonstrating God's love and heart 
for the, for the worst and furthest away of sinners. That is how God's salvation works. Jesus, in talking about his work, he compared himself to Jonah. He says, just as Jonah went into the whale, and would, I am going to go into death for three days and three nights. And just as Jonah came out of the whale, I will come out of death into, into victory, into eternal life. Friends, how, how has God's salvation ever surprised you? Have you ever, I, I just couldn't believe, Lord, you would answer us that way. God is always more gracious to us than we deserve. He, he's, he loves to surprise. Um, I want to close with a last story that I think is, again, relevant for what we're doing. And it's a story of Ahmed. I'm sure that's not his real name. It's told in this book. It's The Wind and the House of Islam. Now, the, the book is a little bit dated. This was 2013. The events of Ahmed's life took place actually before a lot of it took before 9-11, so it was the late 1990s. But Ahmed, at one point, was a Taliban fighter. Um, he grew up in a rural Muslim village. He was taught to be a warrior for Islam. His father committed him to a madrasa uh, when he was a child, and, and he was forced, in a sense, to memorize the Quran. He became a hafez, which is someone who memorized the entire Quran in Arabic. In addition to that, he was taught to kill. Um, his brother had a different path. His brother, Nasir, went to the city, uh, one of the big cities, and made friends with, with different people, including a Westerner named Ted, who was actually a, a sort of undercover missionary. And Ted got to know Nasir, and when, when Ahmed visited his brother, um, he was furious that, that Nasir was hanging out with Ted and, and other people like that. In fact, uh, Ahmed called them, why are you hanging out with these Jews? Because he didn't understand Christianity or anything. For them, just any Westerner was Jewish because that was the enemy in his mind. And he went back and told his teachers, and his teacher said, you need to kill Ted. So Ahmed at one point tried to lure him into a trap. Um, and it was ready to, to be able to kill him. And this says he looked in his eyes. And he couldn't do it. Something stopped him. So Ted and Nasir went back to the city. Um, Ahmed ended up going on and then joining the Taliban in the fight. And he didn't realize all that would mean. And, and when he participated in some of the horrific deeds, the destruction of a village and even the killing of an of a, a infant, something in him broke. And he, he says, I can't do this. And so he ran away from the, the Taliban fighting. And he didn't know what to do. And he sought out his brother Nasir and ended up at Ted's house and started talking with them. And he was so broken, he was ready to learn new things. And so Ted made him a deal. You, you read the Bible and I'll read the Koran, and we'll, we'll, we'll compare notes. And so Ahmed went back to the village and for a year studied the Bible, and God started to slowly change his heart and mind. And one night, he had a dream. And I'll just read the quote 
It says, that night I had a dream. Through the little window in my room, I saw a big light come through, and it had a face. The light spoke to me and said, I am sending my three people to you. Listen to them, and whatever they say, do it. Three times I had this dream. The next morning I saw Ted, Jason, another believer, and my brother. So Jesus appeared to Ahmed, and it says at that point he was ready. He, he decided to put his faith in, in Jesus as he understood him, was baptized, um, and ultimately um, his whole family had looked to him to be, because he was the one trained as their spiritual leader, and so he, he led his whole family into believing in Jesus. They, they've held on to their Muslim context and some of the cultural sides, but they are people who, who have put their faith in Jesus and, and have proclaimed him. How could you imagine God's surprising salvation came in this way, in ways that we could hardly imagine? I wonder if, you know, I do wonder what Ahmed and his, his tribe now are doing in the midst of, of all of this and what they're facing in our thing. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like Jonah, you're, you're running from God. You're not sure if you can trust him. And, and what would it take for God to get your attention, to convince you that you don't need to run, but that you can turn to him? Maybe you're here this morning and you're going through a storm. Whatever's happening in your life just feels upended. There's the tempest raging. And what you need, what we all need, is, is a, a fortress that we can hold on to, a secure guideline we can connect into. The Lord our God is a refuge. He is trustworthy. We can hold on and as that storm rages in our life, know that he has a hold of us even when it feels like we could barely hold on to him. A mighty fortress is our God. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that, that you sent your son Jesus so we can know your grace, so we can know your love, so we can know that you will hold on to us even when we have trouble holding on to you, that we are secure in that relationship. And Father, I just pray for each person here that, that they, would, they would cling to you all the more in what they're facing, and that through the storm, they would know you more, they would love you more and that all of us would follow you more. In Jesus' name, amen.